You're listening to 106.9 here on Tune FM. As you may have seen in the news recently, in a mind-blowing discovery, an 8-centimetre worm was found living inside a woman's brain. The woman was complaining of neurological symptoms, including depression and severe headaches, which led to an MRI scan. The scan revealed abnormalities and surgery was scheduled, at which point the roundworm was detected. A parasitologist from the CSIRO determined that it was a roundworm species called Ophidoscarus robertsi, usually found in pythons. This patient is the first case known in the world of the parasite being found in humans, and since the patient lives near an area inhabited by carpet pythons, scientists have hypothesized how the parasite came to be inside her brain. As she was often collecting grasses from around the lake to cook with, it is believed that a python may have excreted the parasite in its feces that contaminated the grass. I am lucky enough to be joined by UNE's very own Dr. Tommy Lung, a parasitologist and lecturer in the School of Environment and Rural Science, to discuss the case and how common parasite infections of this nature occur in humans. Tommy has been researching parasites and disease ecology for years now and themes of his work includes the ecology of parasites, how parasites interact with their hosts and the macroecology of disease and, parat- and parasitism. Uh, Dr. Long, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it is absolutely our pleasure. So I guess off the bat, because most people's reaction when hearing this story would have been one of disgust or horror, uh, can you shed some light on the typical life cycle of roundworms and how they sustain themselves while living inside humans? Okay, so roundworms have actually evolved parasitism several times. Like within the nematode, that particular phylum, um, roundworms have evolved like parasitism on 15 separate occasions. So they're really, really into the parasitism and all that kind of stuff. And so you find a wide variety of life cycles. You have things like Ascaris, which is the usual kind of like stomach, uh, the intestinal roundworms, which have a very simple life cycle. So they just lay eggs that go into the environment and then you get infected by ingestion, uh, similarly with like hookworms and things like that, which penetrate through your skin. Uh, but there are a wide variety of roundworms that have a more complex life cycle where the larval stage has to infect a different animal before it gets inside the final host. So in the case of Ophidascaris, they actually have to infect uh, mammals in the environment, usually small mammals like bandicoots or sugar gliders and things like that. Or there was even one case, there was a paper where it was found in a koala, but basically something that a python can eat and then it can complete its life cycle once it gets inside that of their final host, which in this case, it's a carpet python. So was this parasite essentially using the woman's brain as a intermediate? Yeah, that's correct. So it basically just, uh, it ended up in her and it's like, well, I'm inside the body of a mammal, so I'm going to do my usual mammal thing. So the interesting thing to note is that usually in the other cases where uh, scientists have found Ophidascaris inside the body of various different kinds of native mammals, it's inside the liver. So it's unusual that uh, it was found in her brain. However, I did note that in the paper, um, they did note that there were some lesions on her liver as well as her lungs, which is consistent with the patterns of migration within the worm. And it was only after a course of ivermectin that it seems that the worm kind of got scared or whatever and then end up going into her brain. So um, there's a few kind of conflude, like confounding factors there because it's possible that the worm might be inside of un- the body of an unfamiliar host. So it normally infects things like bandicoots and koalas and sugar gliders and things like that. So once it ends up inside a human, it's like, uh, what's going on? This, is, this looks a bit unfamiliar. So it kind of blunders into all kinds of places. And this is actually pretty common with other kinds of parasites as well that accidentally end up in human beings. 
I was going to say, well, first of all, that's absolutely fascinating that an anti-parasitical uh, anti medicine, ivermectin, was taken and the worm freaked out and scurried away somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's, well, that's my hypothesis because normally that drug is supposed to kill it, but it evidently didn't ki kill it. Uh, so <laughs> so I, I think that the worm probably like, oh, something's not right about this. And then they freaked out and went somewhere else. Um, because uh, after they removed the worm and then gave her another course of antihelminthics, a lot of the lesions in her liver as well as her lungs cleared up, which is consistent with like what I, I hypothesize would be the worm causing those lesions in the first place as it migrates through the body. And I understand the woman in question was complaining of abdominal distress uh, in 2021, which yep. caused her to go to hospital. And yep. obviously from there, uh, she was given treatment and whatnot. Then last year, 2022, uh, is when the headaches and the neurological symptoms sort yeah. of hit. And that's what led her to be scheduled to the MRI scan. Given that there was uh, a period of at least a year between initial symptoms and the worm being discovered, are parasitical infections difficult to diagnose? Because it seems a long time between... Yeah, I guess it's... It's just because they're like the symptoms that they cause could be very um, like non-specific. It could be explained away by like other things, like a stomach ache or, or something like that. Um, one of the things to note is that he, she also had like high levels of eosinophil, which is a specific kind of white blood cell that uh, the body produces to attack nematode worms. So that would have been a sign. But then again, they also test for signs of other parasites as well the other kind of usual suspect kind of human infecting parasites and they got negative tests on all of those. It was just that this case was like really unexpected. And admittedly, if I was suffering from a stomach ache or a headache, my first thought would not be, I have a worm. Yeah, de yeah, definitely not. It's like, there's a whole list of like other things. Maybe you're like, if you're really, par really paranoid, then you might think it's a worm. But even then, just on a probability thing, it's most likely to be something else like, I don't know, a hangover or you ate something bad. Exactly. Uh, so where do parasites often live within the human body? Are they normally found in the brain or elsewhere? I guess it depends on the kind of parasites because there's actually a, um, I guess to most people, alarming number of different parasites that can make their home inside the body of a human being. Um, so usually, I guess, they'll be somewhere inside the viscera, so inside the, the torso. So you're talking about places like intestine, uh, stomach, or the liver. Those are places that you can get a lot of like, nutrients and stuff like that. Um, there are also several other species that could migrate to other places. A lot of the species that migrate to like weird or like weird places that causes discomfort like the brain or the eye are parasites that don't usually infect human beings but they accidentally end up in a human being for one reason or another and then they kind of get lost they're like hmm, this isn't <laughs> this isn't a rat or this isn't a whatever that i was supposed to get into of course. Now, obviously, I would imagine that depend that symptoms of a parasitical infection would depend on whereabouts the parasite is located. You know, obviously, in this case, it was the brain. They might differ if it's located in the eye or the stomach or the intestines or what have you. And as we sort of touched on before, symptoms of an infection can be very, very nonspecific and very, very easily mixed up with any other um, any other cause, like you said, a hangover or, a, or food poisoning or something. Are there any symptoms that typically flag a possible parasitic infection? Is there anything that you could be suffering from that might make people think, okay, hang on, this could be a worm? Oh, well, I guess with Ascaris, they could cause um, bowel obstructions. Um, Ascaris worm, that's the nematode I mentioned that have a very simple life cycle. And so the adult stage of those worms live inside the large intestine and they, uh, they can grow quite large. They grow to about the size of a chopstick. 
and they can kind of, you know, if you have a lot of them, which um, it could be the case, um, they could cause like blockages. But usually with like Ascaris worm, um, like a lot of people freak out when they hear me talk about parasites and stuff like that. But I think like washing your hands would get rid of like 90% of like over 90% of the parasites that are likely to infect you. Um, so, like, wash your hands and you won't get infected by parasites, I guess. That is good advice. I must admit, the uh, in regards to bowel blockages, I have uh, quite a few times stumbled down the, uh, the rabbit hole of YouTube videos of <laughs> worms being extracted. Uh, if you're like me and you find parasites fascinating, um, feel free to do that. If you're squeamish, maybe best not. Don't, <laughs> yeah. um, don't, 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 um, don't, don't watch those. Oh, if you watch, my, like, if you look at my YouTube history every now and then, I'll go through, like, this whole thing where I'll look at videos of, like, people gutting fish and stuff like that specifically to look for um, potential parasite cases so yeah I'm, I'm one of the people I'm, I'm one of the freaks well I'm a parasitologist so of course what do you expect from me of course I was going to say <laughs> what else would your YouTube history be um, so in regards going back to uh, this particular uh, roundworm Ophiscaris robertsi um, in what exactly is this obviously this worm was living inside this woman's brain how the typical life cycle of this roundworm, how long would it have been living in there before it died? Well, it could have been living there for a very long time because um, there was a series of study done by a parasitologist back in 1960, uh, Professor John Sprent. And he did a series of study on this particular worm back when it was named uh, Amplicecum uh, robertsi before it got its name changed. And he found that they can actually live inside the intermediate host for a long time. He did some like field studies as well as like experimental infection, looking at the kind of animals that this particular worm can live in and develop as the larval stage. And he found that um, they develop the best inside native mammals mostly. Uh, they don't do so well if they end up in like a guinea pig or rabbit and they don't develop in all, at all inside like a dog or sheep. Uh, but inside its usual intermediate host, it could live for like over four years um, based on studies of like the lab, you know, lab rats and stuff like that. So um, because the whole life cycles of these parasites, there's a lot of waiting around. So basically the python, they, you know, shed their feces and then the eggs are waiting around. They're resistant to desiccation as well. So they wait around for a little bandicoot or something like that to accidentally ingest them. And once they get inside there, they grow to you know, eight centimeters long, and then they just wait around like, okay, well, we're just waiting for this little bandicoot to get eaten by a python. So there's a lot of waiting around. So these worms are extremely patient if they're inside the right host. And four years is a very long time to be living with a with a worm inside your brain. Yeah. Would this um would this uh would the would would this infection living inside a, her, the woman's brain could that would that have eventually killed her? Can infections of this nature be fatal? It's really hard to say because I'm not a neurologist, so I don't know like what kind of um and because the human brain is so complex, it's really hard to say. Um, I know that a lot of news coverage are kind of making the easy link between like her depression with like the worm but we don't know that for sure, sure. Um, there's a lot of other parasites that could end up in the brain it could cause like headaches and stuff like that but it's not really clear like you know whether it would would have ended up killing her it's obviously not good to have like a worm that size living inside your brain but it's not really clear what kind of like neurological damage that um, a parasite like that could cause yeah okay so it's it's not necessarily true to link 
her depressive symptoms and other neurological symptoms directly with the work. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's really hard to say. Like you know, I know that there's a lot of news coverage of like parasite manipulating the minds of human beings, especially with like that cat parasite toxoplasma. But it, we're not really at a point where we can say definitively, like, oh, this parasite located at this place is going to cause you like depression or, or whatever else. You know, we're not we're not really there yet with like the human brain. No, that's fair enough, and I think that's something that a lot of people should uh, be keeping in mind. Is that if the prevailing theory is correct as to how this particular roundworm got inside uh, the woman's brain uh, via eating grass that had been essentially had, that had, had that had been contaminated by the feces of an infected python. Would this is this a is this a common way of uh, picking up a parasitic infection? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, like I said about that statement about washing hands, it's basically like washing. Like hygiene would get rid of like the large majority of parasites that are likely to infect you, um, and that's how these parasites in the wild how they get into the host that they want to get into, which is by you know just accidentally being ingested along with whatever else. Uh, that they usually ingested. So, for example, with like liver fluke, which is very common in the New England region, um, they have larval stage that attach themselves onto waterside vegetation, like watercress and things like that. So, when say a sheep comes along and like browse a bit of waterside vegetation, they end up ingesting the parasite along with their usual fodder. Um, so, you know, anyone who collects watercress from like dams and stuff like that, just careful for watch out for like liver flukes and stuff um, or, or maybe cook them because cooking cooking's the other thing that would get rid of the rest of the parasite that are likely to infect you so given that this grass that this woman collected was cooked it's likely that she had touched the she had picked up the the parasite on her hands and just didn't yeah wash. yeah it's possible or maybe contamination of like the cooking equipment or something like that so um, and it's really hard to say like how much you have to wash your vegetation in order to like get rid of the parasites that might be stuck to them. So yeah, cooking is always like, cooking is probably one of the greatest invention of like humanity. It does reinforce how important it is to A, practice good hand hygiene and make sure that the things you eat are properly cooked. Whether yes, that's, that's correct. Whether that's meat or vegetation yeah, like yeah. grass or watercress for the for the areas around the New England uh, region. Are there any similarities between how this particular roundworm interacts with a human host and how other more well-known parasites tend to? So there is another parasite. I, I keep mentioning Ascaris. So Ascaris is a type of parasite that um, have a simple life cycle, but they also do the migration through the body. So Ascaris, you get infected by it by ingesting the tiny microscopic eggs from like, you know, what not washing your hands. And, and the eggs can last in the environment for like very long time even decades and so if they get inside of your body the first place they end up is actually inside your small like your intestine which is where these worms need to go to anyway however instead of just like hatching and then staying inside of there as soon as they hatch they actually burrow their way out of the intestine and then they go through this like grand tour of your body cavity so it goes from the intestine through your diaphragm into your lungs and then you kind of cough it up and then you swallow it back in and then they have to do this before it can complete its life cycle. So this seems to be a common thing with a lot of roundworms where even if they end up in like a particular place inside the body, before they could get there, they have to like do this tour around the body uh, for whatever reason, maybe to get nutrients, maybe to get used to the body, get exposed to like the body's defenses uh, in order to survive it. So um, yeah, this is actually relatively common in nematode worms. 
And is there, when people think of worm infections, most of the time they'll likely think of what we know as tapeworm infections, where a tapeworm lives inside you and more or less eats yeah, yeah. most of everything of what you eat. What is, I guess, one of the biggest differences between a roundworm infection and a tapeworm infection? Okay, so tapeworms, it depends on the kind of stages you get the tapeworm. So uh, a little bit of basic on tapeworm biology. Tapeworm is very different from roundworm, not just because they're in different phylum, but also because of the way they get their food. So roundworms, once it get, lives inside your intestine or whatever, they still have their own gut. So they still have to like eat the way that we do. It's just that they're eating things from us. Tapeworms don't have like a digestive tract at all. They have basically evolutionarily evolved to modify the the, the body wall, the body surface, to act as kind of like a sponge for nutrients. So they just they soaking up nutrients inside your intestine or the pre-digested food from your stomach. And so the way that they get nutrients is really different uh, in terms of like you know what they get from your body. So for example, things like hookworms. Hookworms like they feed on your blood, so they actively like have mouths and stuff and feed on your blood. Right. So tapeworms just kind of floating there. It might absorb like a lot of nutrients. So for example, uh, vitamin B12 deficiency is one of the signs of tapeworm infections because they absorb a lot of that stuff before your body can absorb it. Um, so that's for adult tapeworms. Um, the tapeworms that people should really be looking out for are la <coughs> uh, larval tapeworms. So one most notorious one, and it's, this includes the one that they actually test the woman for uh, in the study, uh, is Echinococcus, which is the infamous Hydatid tapeworms. So the Hydatid tapeworms does something that is rather unusual for tapeworm in that the larval stage actually undergo asexual reproduction. Um, the stage that infect humans are the larval stage. Uh, the adult stage live inside like canids, like dogs, and in other parts of the world, like wolves and coyotes and such. Uh, but inside the human body, they just treat the humans as the intermediate host. And they so they undergo asexual reproduction, and over the course of like many years, they could like one little larval stage could turn into like potentially thousands or even millions. And so that's what causes the hydatid cyst. So the hydatid cyst that could like become really bloated and like lodge into one of like a person's organ uh, that's caused by a tapeworm larva. So depending on like what stage of the tapeworm that infects you, it could be like something like, you know, some trace element like nutrient deficiency or it could cause like obstruction in your vital organs. So it, it kind of depends on like where, what host you, the tapeworm's treating you as. Yeah, I see. And in regards to how the worms take in nutrients, you mentioned that um, hookworms feed on blood. Mm -hmm. um, tapeworms obviously take in the nutrients in a different way altogether. How do, so how would this roundworm have been taking in nutrients while it was living inside a brain? Uh, with this particular roundworms, uh, I don't think we really know all that well. Like a lot of these parasites, um, it, it's, I mean, they have a gut, so it's quite possible they're feeding on like host tissue as well as other host nutrients. But the thing about a lot of these, like especially native parasites, we know like very little about what they actually do. Uh, the extent of what we know about a lot of these native parasites is just the fact that they exist and how they look like. Um, there are, you know, over a thousand species of reptiles in Australia, and of those, uh, only about 180, so less than 200 of them, we know the parasites of. So there's a lot of like parasites living out there. Most of them are just happy to like just live out their usual life cycle, having nothing to do with human beings whatsoever. But you know, every now and then you have something like this happens where you know human beings accidentally interrupt the life cycle, and we find out about like how nature be. My goodness, that is fascinating. There are so many species that we do not understand and we do not know 
uh, we don't know enough about them. So it could be a, it, this could have been a very very uh, minor thing, or it could have full on been a worm that was consuming brain tissue. Sleep well, everyone. Uh, Tommy, are you have you been involved in any work uh, looking at this particular roundworm before? Uh, not this particular roundworm before. Although I have published studies on reptile parasites, so I published a study a few years ago with a collaborator in Canada, looking at basically the factors that determine what kind of uh, lizards have like different kinds of parasites. So when you look at like different kinds of lizards, some have like more parasites, others have like fewer, and we're trying to determine like what kind of factors determine like whether these parasites have like a wider variety of parasites, uh, these lizards have wider variety of parasites than others. So we found that things like diet and body size as well as habitat plays like a really big role in influencing, you know, where, like what kind of parasites they have. So the conclusion is like basically you are infected by what you eat. And I understand that if uh, for anyone that may uh, be interested in your work and want to learn more, I understand you have a blog, is that right? Yes, I have a Parasite of the Day blog uh, where I write about like different studies on different parasites and things like that. I usually focus on papers that don't get a lot of uh, press coverage, but I think are really, really interesting and worth like covering. So obviously I'm not going to write about this particular paper because it has plenty of press coverage, uh, but uh, every few, like every month I write a new post about a new studies about different kinds of parasites. So I cover more than just worms as well. I also cover like other things like parasitic crustaceans, uh, parasitic snails even, which is an, a group of animals that most people don't think of as having like parasitic species. So uh, if you want to find out more about parasites beyond just worms, uh, check out that particular blog. And so whereabouts could people visit it? Sorry, whereabouts? So the, uh, the URL is dailyparasite.blogspot.com or you can just look up Parasite of the Day. Perfect. And there you go. For any individual that does want to learn more about parasites, uh, you can check out that blog, as indeed I have done in the past. It is very, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Lung, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely a pleasure. It is a it is a very, very intriguing story. And as someone that is particularly fascinated by parasites and how they interact with hosts, I was very, very excited. Uh, oh, so you're listening to 106.9 here on Tune FM, the home of UNE's student-powered radio.